Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 344 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome! 344, it's a bit of a tongue twister that, isn't it? Yeah. Oh right, yeah, this show, topic, game, yes. In this episode I chat to Chris and Nicholas Biscoff of Brotherhood Games, well they are brothers, about their post-apocalyptic adventure game, Beautiful Desolation. These two are from South Africa. We don't get many South African developers on this show. In fact, maybe the first, I don't know, maybe wrong. Best not catalogue because it's been 344 episodes after all. Although I must confess I've recorded way more than that at the time of doing this little intro because we have quite the backlog. However, that aside, you want to know what's going on this week? Well, it's me from the past talking to Chris and Nicholas about this extraordinary game. It's set in a parallel 1980s, or alternate, I should say, 1980s, where a big alien spaceship has suddenly arrived and all our technology has suddenly increased 10, 20-fold. It's all all extraordinary. This world is so messed up that something rather odd happens, where basically there's a time-travel sequence and you're flung into the future where things have gone very, very, very bad. And you have to fix it. And the only way to fix it is, well, maybe going back into the past and making sure that the things that happened didn't happen, etc., etc. All that time paradox, you know, go back and kill your grandparent. And then if you do that, do you still exist? Yada, yada, yada. Time is a river, etc. All that stuff. It's wonderful. It is a pure adventure game. It looks like Fallout when you see it. It's not. It's not an RPG that way at all. Uh, It is actually a pure adventure game. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. It's wonderful. It's filled with really well put together puzzles. We've had this on the show before, describing the challenge of making puzzles that make sense in adventure games of actually creating a barrier to the player, but at least giving them a sense of achievement and also a feeling that they actually are contributing, helping the story along. So without further ado, let's listen to me from the past talking to Chris and Nicholas. Chris, if you'd be so kind. Nick and Chris. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Well. Hey, nice to be here. So this is to both of you, you can answer either way. So who are you and what do you do? So um, my name is uh, Nick, as you said there, and I am one half of the Brotherhood. I'm one of the brothers. Um, We make niche adventure games, and uh, I am the uh, programmer, and Chris, who will say hello in a second, is the artist. Chris. Yeah, I'm I'm the the other brother in in the Brotherhood. 
I know this is a podcast, but I am the better looking one, as uh, my mother has been telling me for years. Um, I am the uh, the artist. Uh, the, I sort of do all the um, the in-game art, uh, some sort of music, uh, a little bit of sound design, um, and uh, some of the writing uh, for the game. And then between Nick and I, we sort of share narrative responsibilities in, in, in the studio. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I think that sort of between the two of us, we are uh, an unstoppable team so far. <laughs> Well, speaking as someone who has a sister and three brothers, I can relate to the whole sibling thing. <laughs> I was the youngest as well, so you can imagine how that went. <laughs> the younger ones always get the short end of the stick, hey? Yeah, I'm just sharing a little bit too much, but hey, it was, you know, it's all fine now. But, you know, there's a reason why I keep on flinching when people get close to me. Anyway, <laughs> what is that about? What is what is it with the punching? I don't get it. You know what's what is it with that? Anyway, second question to you both. And I think we might only answer to this one, considering our siblings. But uh, how did you start making video games? Chris, let's let's. Uh, I think you should uh, summarize it because uh, the story starts with Christopher. Okay. Yeah. Um... So it started in uh, 1983 when I was born. No, I'm kidding. Um, so uh, Nick and I have always sort of um, uh, had very creative uh, projects together. Um, and we, we sort of started off uh, many years ago with a, a program called Click and Play. And um, even before that, we sort of would do, we would make board games together, um, card games and that sort of thing. And then when we saw uh, a computer, it was a, like a Wisewig editor called Click and Play that let you sort of like set up events in your game um, and you could create platform games and racing games and very sort of rudimentary 2D games. And that sort of, um, it sets the bug in us. And uh, we kind of always, uh, from that moment forward, we're always trying to create the next big computer game. But I mean, I'm talking when we were, you know, 11 years old or so. Um, and then as we kind of went uh, forward in, in, in years, Nick and I actually ended up starting a company together. Uh, um, and uh, we started a company where Nick sort of took care of the business side of it. And I slid into my role as the artist. And this company did um, architectural illustrations uh, and uh, sort of work for industrial designers, for uh, interior designers, um, a lot of presentation work. Um, when we got to sort of, I'd say, the, the height of our company after working on it for about 10 years, uh, in over one December, I decided to make a small, uh, sort of a small little December project. Um, I've always been a fan of adventure games uh, from sort of the Space Quest series, Police Quest, um, King's Quest, all, you know, the, the, the classic oh, LucasArts yes. and Sierra. Yeah, the Sierra yeah. mind games, they were amazing. Yes, yeah, yeah. I've never really had, a, a, I know there's a lot of sort of like, you know, LucasArts versus Sierra fandom, but I've um, I've always loved just the games, games themselves. I think they're too different to... I've, I've yeah, always, you know, I, for me, it was like, well, Police Quest, I mean, I played these on the Atari ST because... British, but yeah, there, there's police quest and that kind of weird stuff, which you could actually end up being dead man walking in it very easily. Yes, yeah. Whereas LucasArts, they were like, "Do you want a belly laugh? A lot." Yes, this yeah. This is your game. Yeah, it's actually really interesting to sort of look at those um, the two different uh, kind of like design languages and, mm -hmm. and ways that they actually made games. And I, I personally, I, I like games where you can die violently, um, <laughs> which is 
probably shows in a lot of the games that we actually made. So I tended to gravitate towards the Sierra games, a bit of like the, the darker humor. Mm. Um, but I mean, the LucasArts games are just beautiful examples of, of, of artistry. And they were sort of the AAA games of, of time. Um, yeah. And when we had, I think it was in uh, around 2015 or so, um, I downloaded a, um, a, another WiseWeek editor because um, I'm, I'm not a programmer. I'm not a technically minded person. Um, and this editor is called Visionaire. And uh, it's a very, very powerful tool for artists to be able to make adventure games. So you can't do much else with it, but you can do adventure games quite simply. Um, very little programming knowledge is needed. It's all sort of drag and drop um, and uh, events based, you know, if then, but uh, um, situations. And I started making a game called Stasis. And uh, I worked in it in my spare time for a couple of years. And then it got to the point where the Double Fine Adventure uh, Kickstarter launched, the, the Kickstarter for Broken Age launched. Um, and of course, then Kickstarter and crowdfunding and adventure games sort of blew up on, online in an amazing way. Um, and suddenly there was this uh, this idea of, um, you know, Nick and I had been working together. We'd grown um, this incredible company. Um, we were sort of at, at, at the height of our careers. And I was like, I've got a good idea. Let's not do that anymore. Let's make computer games. Um, and to Nick's credit, he actually didn't think that I was a crazy person and, and actually said, well, let's give it a try and, and see if we can actually make something of it. Um, and then we ran a Kickstarter and we made, um, I think it was $130,000 or so, or so on, on the Kickstarter. Um, and that was enough for us to say, um, not for us to quite like close our company and be like, oh, you know, we can sort of do this full time. But it was definitely enough to work as a test bed for um, is this a viable business for us in the future to to go into. Uh, and then for two years, uh, essentially, Nick continued to run our company and also work as a producer on Stasis. And I uh, devoted the majority of my time for that. It was two years or 18 months or so development cycle to completing stasis and then working part-time in our architectural design business. So it was a very sort of stressful two years for Nick and I, where we both essentially had two, I say part-time, but they were two full-time jobs. Um, and uh, yeah, then we released the game and it did well enough that we decided that this was a part that we could actually pursue full-time. Um, and uh, I'll let Nick sort of continue the rest of the story from, from there, because uh, that was when Nick sort of joined in in the company in uh, much more of a full-time capacity as the programmer um, because Stasis was very much, uh, it was me doing the sort of design, the code, the art, the sounds, the writing and, uh, and, and, and everything. And then Nick sort of acting as um, doing, doing all the stuff that artists hate doing, such as QA and dealing with contracts and finding people to do certain things and the business and marketing side of things so knowing yeah. how to do a pivot table in a spreadsheet that's yeah. it there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah and then you know from my side um i've i've been programming for a long time i did it at school um um i come my education is is on the it side so i've always had programming in my you know it's like 30 years now of, of programming that i've been doing and um I uh, used to um, develop a lot of tools for us to use in our business. Um, 
uh, that uh, and uh, plugin systems and that that ran our that essentially ran our business. So I was always sort of dabbling in programming and that. And uh, Chris said, uh, "Yeah, le- you know, is this something that we could do?" And I said, "Yeah, we'll. I think so. I think I think Chris did leave out the point. I mean, our business was uh, very successful at the time, our architectural company, but um, it was extremely stressful. So uh, we made a lifestyle a lifestyle uh, decision, and we we closed our business." Um, we then came down to Cape Town, which is a, a coastal city um, in South Africa. We left um, Johannesburg, which is the uh, uh, CBD uh, financial hub, um, and we sort of went for a much low, more low-key lifestyle, uh, where just Chris and myself could um, just essentially make video games. And uh, yeah, so in our first, our first video game that we made together was a test um, platform to see, you know, is this something? Can we actually work together? On a video game project, although we'd been working together for more than ten years um, in our in our other business capacity, with lots of staff and huge projects and that sort of thing, and we thought, you know, maybe we could work together. So we sat in the same office for for a year and we produced an adventure game, and that was Kane, and we released that for free, and uh, that was fairly well received. And uh, and then um, we used that uh, momentum to launch our next crowdfunding, which was for Beautiful Desolation. And then that led to a three-year development cycle where we then produced the, the game that, um, that you've just recently played. Yeah. Brought us right up to date. Thank you. Thank it's, you. It's interesting <laughs> how far back one goes. Because I've had some guests go, well, when I was six, okay, fine, let's, let's do this. <laughs> and then they start talking about their adventures on the Commodore 64, which is perfectly fine, and we're okay with that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> no, it's you know, it's like when I was a fetus. Okay, I heard my mother. T- yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, far. it's a, it's a wonderful history, uh, and uh, to to go from very sort of say corporate, but it's still deeply um, it was creative. Corporate, yeah. <laughs> um, very corporate, but yeah. it's it's also yeah. very wasteful because the amount of schemes you must have drawn up, and yeah, we're not doing that now because planning. Yeah. Okay, so but yeah, it, it's you know one of the. One of the main things, one of the main reasons, you know, a lot of people ask us why, why did we do this? Um, uh, sort of on a um, on a high level, it was just that for so long we did other people's work and other people's projects. Uh, yeah, we did uh, a lot of work in Dubai and a lot of uh, sort of super high rises and and uh, animations and huge amounts of thousands of proposals for various projects, but they were never ours. They were always we were contracted by someone to produce art on a large scale for their project. So. We sort of uh, looked at this as an opportunity to produce something that we wanted to create, which uh, you don't really, you know, in, in today's world, you very seldom get that opportunity. And video games would give us that opportunity to create something, a vision um, and a world that uh, interested us. And, um, and lo and behold, people would actually pay for this vision <laughs> and allow us to make more of it. So it was a video games were the perfect outlet for us. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it it's, and it's really encouraging to see that you've you've uh, found your niche with adventure games because we all know, in the was it late nineties, early two thousand, where they went south really fast. Yeah, and they yeah. just I think that was uh, Gabriel Knight three with the infamous cat hair, um, problem. I'm not <laughs> sure if you know about that, but that's what was yeah, cited as moustache hair. Yeah, yeah, it's basically <laughs> yeah. cited as like you went there, you went there. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we're done as a genre. We're done. We're just going to play Baldur's Gate instead, and and mess around yeah. with space hamsters. Knock yourself out. Yeah, so, I mean, you know. 
tell, Telltale um, brought uh, the... Okay, maybe not in the exact format, but uh, very similar to the genre of adventure games back. And um, I think they just Telltale just got too too big uh, in terms yeah. of the projects that they were um, financially they were costing too much money to produce, mm. and they weren't be, weren't able to uh, turn profit because. And that's the very simple fact that adventure games are well, the kind of adventure games that we make are a niche product. Yes. The market for them is not. Uh, 100 million people no. it's half a million people and that's segregated even further down into yes. uh, various sub-genres so yeah. um i don't think you're going to find triple a games in the sphere that we're making games but no. um we will as long as we can uh, as long as people are prepared to um uh, fund our games we'll continue making them you know um, yeah because this uh, what you've done with beautiful desolation is it's an extraordinary thing. I'm looking forward to talking about it in detail. Before we do, Lovely. I've got the dreaded third question. Ready? <laughs> oh, please. Yeah, Chris, you answer it. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> a matter of times I've had guests go, it's not offensive. It's just, <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, hang on. I've never thought about that. Hang on. So here we go. You want <clears> I am wearing thing. pants right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, though. <laughs> but you, you both, both of you are creators of things. So therefore, this yeah. is a question that I like to ask creators, which, which is this. What are your biggest influences? No, I can, that's not even a surprising question. I can go on for years about my big influence. Um, <laughs> Don't get him started. Don't get him started. <laughs> um, so I think that one of, artistically, um, probably the largest single artistic project that's influenced me the most in my life uh, is uh, the movie Alien. Um, I remember watching it for the first time. I remember seeing the alien for the first time. I mean, I'm I'm now in my mid-30s, so I sort of saw it um, on kind of VHS, and I saw it at that perfect age. It must have been about maybe nine, ten years old. So you're at that age where you're young enough to be terrified by by a movie and and by by um uh you know monsters under the bed um but you also sort of like you can understand the story and you can understand um sort of where these things actually come from it's it's not just you know jump scares and things that go that go bump in the night so the the visuals uh from that movie are sort of steered onto my onto my eyeballs the sound from that movie is steered onto my brain um, and I don't think that there's a piece of artwork that I've produced in my 20-odd years of, of, of uh, working in some sort of, um, or, you know, 15 years of working professionally that doesn't have some little hint of uh, um, alien in it in, in some way. And that, of course, can be seen uh, in stasis, which is sort of like it wears its, its homages on its, on its sleeve. Um, and then when I saw Aliens, I was a little bit older, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, that movie as well. That movie sort of showed me that um, sort of like how, how artistic horror can actually be. Because like, Alien to me is just horror. It's just terror. Yes. Yes. Aliens is sort of like it's designed horror and it's designed terror. And it really sort of showed me a, a different take on the, the, the entire genre. Um, and that, of course, led me into uh, H.R. Giger um, mm-hmm. to... Uh, I, I don't think the world will ever be blessed quite with somebody that has that level of, of genius and um, just understanding of, of what makes your skin crawl and, and 
Um, I sort of I've read his autobiography. I've I've you know got uh, an early edition print of the Necromonicon um, actually behind me right here. Um, I've sort of became a little bit obsessed, and to the point I've actually got sort of eager tattoos on my arm and that. So um, in terms of that, that sort of artistic influence, uh, I, I don't think that I could sort of go through this conversation without actually mentioning that. No, no, um, and the, and the tone of those films as well. There's more to it than, you know, who's the real monsters here? Oh, wait. Yes, it, yeah. You know, the whole, I love that scene. Most people don't really talk about it. It's this wonderful scene where they're arguing over their bonus. <laughs> Yes, and, and yes, yeah, yes. This is alien, not an aliens, because that doesn't. Yes. In aliens, it's front and center. But in alien, it's more like these two morons are just oh, like, I don't yeah. care. And it's like, oh, well, I don't care. Long you know, I just want to talk to the captain about a bonus situation. What's, yeah. what's that about? And then as soon as, as soon as they, they get the chance of them losing their bonus, if they don't actually visit it, both of them actually change their minds yes. immediately. And they're the ones who are like, okay, we have to go down then, you know? <laughs> and check it out. And yeah, it's this beautiful sort of like. Yeah. It, it feels like Pathos. it could happen to you. Yeah, yeah it's it's the it's something that I think um, even a lot of our games uh, have tended to focus on. That's the idea of um, ordinary people in extraordinary situations. So you know, in that case, they they weren't superheroes. They, they a, aliens obviously sort of like inverted that a little bit and actually gave people who were prepared, um, but they didn't. They weren't yeah. quite as prepared as they thought they were. But alien, that idea of the normal, regular, everyday person who's put in this extraordinary situation is something that I think as a storyteller, um, both Nick and I are big fans of and something that we've brought through in, in all of our work. Um, yeah, going, I definitely see that. Yeah, having the XO of a towing vehicle <laughs> becoming this hero, like, like yes, yeah. she's, she's just trying to do a job. That and the cat. Don't forget Jonesy, of course. Yeah, yeah, and the Jonesy's the, the real hero of the <laughs> yeah, show. Yeah, generally. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I like cats. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, this, 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 it's a wonderful thing. I definitely can see it now, the, the dry humour, uh, even to the point where it's uh, probably not, uh, wasn't intentional to be funny, but it turned out to be actually, that's because it's funny because it's absurd. Like, how did yes, we yeah. get here? How'd... And that happens a lot in Beautiful Desolation. The amount of times the brothers look at each other and go, sorry, how did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> it's just wonderful conversations between them. Like, you know, the, the typical brother conversations that I'm very familiar with where you talk over each other because you know what the next yeah. one's going to say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, it. I think Chris, um, Chris sort of approaches uh, our projects much more seriously than I. I mean, you can see that from... Um, from Stasis, which was, um, there was not much, there was a little bit of humor, but not much humor in Stasis. Um, through to our latest game, we are a bit more involved and it's a little bit more, I sort of try to steer the projects a little bit more lighthearted. Chris kind of drags them back into the, into the, uh, the doom and gloom. But um, I think the, I think on our latest project, um, on, on, on Beautiful Desolation, it does work, re- it does work really well. I mean, um, we also were writing from what we know, brothers. So, uh, I think that the, the the play between the two was uh, was familiar enough to us, you know, write what you know, and um, yeah, I think it came it came through. Um, yeah, because I think when, if I had to, so I'm just about to say one of the things that yeah. speak when you have a lot of siblings, you just have to make your voice heard, and when that happens, you then have to assert your personality, and then it becomes stronger and stronger, and more and more different to your siblings in order to be, yeah. and yeah. you become. You're, you're one as a family, but as people, you're very different. And that's its strength. Yeah. Um, that's what I've personally found. So, yeah. 
And I definitely I mean, get all, that. You know, that's... That, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, all of our games, even the latest one we're working on, um, uh, which is actually a, uh, a sequel to Stasis at the moment, all of our games, um, like Christopher said, they're sort of ordinary people in extraordinary situations. And uh, we sort of... We always have a family orientation, a family relationship, uh, because it's something that we know and we're familiar with. And it's easier to tell a story um, where characters know each other. You know, when you look at someone like uh, Tolkien or something like that, those guys are geniuses who could create these massive worlds or interconnected worlds with characters who might not be familiar with each other. But if, you, if you're a, a novice writer like, like, we, like we are, and you sort of want to tell a very simple, impactful, potent story then it's best to start with a familial relationship. And that would be a, I'd advise anyone who's um, doing video games and uh, um, are looking for sort of story ideas, you know, family, that, that really is, and I think that's a pinnacle of our stories, Chris, do you agree? Yeah, definitely. I think there's sort of a, a universality to, to that. And even, I mean, um, just in general, like the stories that inspire me tend to, um, revolve around family. I mean, one of one of my favorite genres is like the the murder dad genre. You know, sort of like the uh, the gruff, the gruff old dad who has to you know protect his the the, the charge. Um, and uh, I think that even when you get games that you know, sort of something like The Last of Us, um, it sounds so cliche that it does come down to family. But a lot of those familial relations are so important because it, everybody has family, and it's something that gives you a touchstone. Uh, in, in any story that you know um you you people would would do anything to actually protect the people that they that they love yeah. um and it gives you such a such a strong sort of start to actually build off of if you've got a strong foundation it's very very easy to build a strong story on top of that yeah even uh, eventually pooch becomes a nice thing but anyway we'll talk about yeah. it later. <laughs> um so the next question then and this one's also difficult to answer although you two found it easy the last one so I'll take it back. Maybe you just sort of rampage through this one as well. But here we go. Um, and again, you can answer as a, you, as as the Brotherhood or, or individually. I don't mind. But uh, the question is this: What developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? Nick, would you like to start? Uh, oh, okay, I'll start. Yes, yeah, you can go. You can go. <laughs> okay. So this kind of connects to um, my um, inspiration uh, uh, from the previous question. And I would say that um, uh, Toys for Bob, who I'm, I'm not sure if modern day gamers would be familiar with them, um, but they made a, probably my favorite game of all time, which was Star Control 2. They still made, they made Star Control 1 as well, but Star Control 2, which I feel is the greatest adventure game ever made. And... Um, Fred uh, Ford and Paul Reichley the uh, third they developed this game in the um, early 90s it was um, uh, very similar to Starflight if anyone's played Starflight and it was a zany adventure uh, adventure game with a sort of RPG like elements um, and uh, yeah I think that those guys really um, sort of influenced influenced me at that time to want to make games Chris and I've been trying to make a game like Star Control since 1994 <laughs> and, uh, yeah. um, and we actually had the opportunity to meet them uh, we, we went to San Francisco and met up with them and they're really cool guys and we're hoping uh, that they do something great uh, with soccer. if they're listening to this we're, we're open to work on the next game with them um, you'd be surprised yes. uh, <laughs> 
Christopher, or what would you like to say? Who influenced I mean, you, bro? It's, I, I mean, um, I, I definitely think kind of the, um, the, the, the early sort of like black uh, aisle developers um, uh, and obviously Obsidian uh, developers, you know, um, uh, Brian Fargo, uh, I think that his sort of, I mean, the, so we, we, I've actually done, done work with, with Brian. I mean, we actually got the opportunity to beat him. And I didn't know this, but Brian Fargo made battle chess. And I have these early memories of sitting with my father and actually playing battle chess. Um, and then to actually meet the person that made battle chess and actually like have a beer with him. And um, he, I think he actually ended up he, like bought us lunch and we went to their offices and I ended up doing some work on, on Wasteland 3 um, with him. Mm. And uh, legitimately, I think that um, those those early games um, and specifically, you know, Wasteland is one of the, the, the earlier sort of like um, RPGs that I can remember actually actually playing. And then, of course, sort of Fallout. Um, uh, they, they're just such sort of seminal moments in, in my gaming history. Um, and then uh, more recently, um, I love Ken Levine's games. Uh, I think that there's there's very few developers who I would consider to be sort of auteurs. You know, like game development tends to be, it's a very collaborative collaborative uh, medium. And it sort of has to be just by its, its very general nature. Um, but I would put Ken Levine as somebody who's one of the few developers who actually is sort of an auteur developer. Like I, I get the idea that a Ken Levine game is it's in his head and he sort of puts it from his head out into the world. Um, and he doesn't deviate from, from that, that path. And it's something that it's, it's more common with filmmakers, um, but less common with, with uh, game developers. Um, and then I think what Casey Hudson did with Mass Effect, uh, it's uh, especially I mean Mass Effect Two. Uh, a lot of people complain about Mass Effect Two, but I think that structurally it's one of my favorite games because it, it plays like a um, uh, like a really cool spy TV series instead of a, a sort of film. It, it, it plays like a um, yeah like a like, like just a beautifully written TV series, which I thought was such a unique way to actually tackle the RPG. Um, genre. So I'm really excited to see what he actually comes up with uh, in, in the future. Yeah, I mean, I'm playing through Mass Effect Legendary Edition at the moment. First one, my friends, that's one. That's that's a bit of a. It's it's 14 years old, and it really is 14 yeah. years old. And, it shows. Uh, we've, we've learned. <laughs> we've learned so much. In yeah. time, and it's like. This is I can just see the code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can. <laughs> you can. I call it the red dress syndrome. You can just see the code. Oh yeah. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I stopped playing World of Warcraft because all I could see was two spreadsheets hitting each other. I went, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> so the truth is, though, if you if you ask many people to think back to um, you know those games like Mass Effect, they they the memories that they have of those games. Yeah. Um, that nostalgia kind of overpowers them, and if they if they actually sat down and watched a let's play or something of it, they would say, "Wow, is that what it looked like?" You know, I think uh, <laughs> nostalgia is a fantastic thing. So it's like Knights of the Old Republic, you know. Yeah, but you got HK forty seven and meat bags, and you know that was really funny. But have you played it recently? Oh, why is it? Why is it? I can't even see anything. Why is it all so smudgy? Well, they had no texture memory anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nothing. But last question of the first half. So you made it. Well done. Here we go. And I have to ask this question because this is a video game podcast. 
So here we go. What are you playing right now? Bro, you can you can take this one while I think about it because uh, I've got like candy crap <laughs> on my phone. <laughs> you know, it's it's. I'm sure that the other game developers can um, relate. I have hundreds of games in my Steam library, but I don't get a lot of time to um, play all the way through. So I've got hundreds of unfinished games. But uh, one thing I'm playing a lot of at the moment is Factorio. Not an adventure game. I think it's as far from what I do as a day job as possible. It's a systems-based game. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying Factorio at the moment. Um, and uh, I've been playing a bit of, uh, a bit of Diablo as well. Um, so nothing right. too groundbreaking. No, mainly no. because I just don't have time. So Factorio is a really interesting game. I don't know if you know this. You probably do because you play it. You do realize that that's never gone on sale and never will go on sale. Do you know about this? Yeah, they, yes, yeah. sure. They, I mean, that's why they were able to, uh, they sued G, uh, G2, uh, G2, GTA, G2A, yeah, 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 uh, because yeah. they were selling the pirated keys. Because they that's said, right, yeah. our game has never been on discount and will never be on never discount. Never be. So, it, if you, how, um, how much, basically, the question is, how much does it play, cost to pay Victoria uh, uh, for UK? £21. Okay, does it go on sale? No. If you want to play this game, you have to pay £21. I'll just wait and go and sell. You'll be waiting forever because it's never going to happen. And fair play to them. Fair play to them. You know, this is they, yeah. And they've been massively successful because of it. I say because of yeah. it. So what, the other reason is it's an awesome game, but it's not for everyone. In spite of it, yes. In spite of itself. But then again, no game yes. is for everyone. That's the point, you know. Unless yeah. it's three. Yeah. <laughs> I just love threes. I still threes is one of my favourite mobile games. It's like I I don't know. I, oh, let's just go. Oh look, twenty thousand points. Check me out. That's actually quite a bad score. But anyway. um, so uh, yeah, well, it, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can go on. Um, so in, in terms of of my actual um, computer games, like I said, I I don't have uh, a ton of time to actually no, play no. Um, games. Uh, the last game I did play, I replayed uh, um, Dead Space 1 uh, over December, and okay. I finished it, and I, I just fell in love with it again. It's just such a phenomenal game. Um, and then what I do do is I do sort of tabletop uh, RPGs. Um, so I do play those. I, I generally prefer to do one-shots. I don't like big, long campaigns because they just never finish. And to try to organize eight people to get together on the same day is just near impossible. Um, so, yeah, so I, I enjoy playing. It's an RPG system called Dread. Uh, yeah, oh, God. Is, Freaking Jenga oh, Tower. And just like, the Jenga Tower. I've had players sit there going, I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. So, well, you've got to touch it. Otherwise, you don't unlock the, the airlock. And then you die anyway. So you're going to have to touch it. Sorry. So I'm talking. At the beginning of the game, where everybody's very sort of like close to the table, and then by the end, people are a meter away and sort of like. Yes, terrifying. Yeah. But the point of the listeners, everyone knows that basically the skill check for, because roleplay games generally have skill checks. Not all of them, I know, but most of them have a skill check. And usually it's dice. But for Dread, it's been around for a good 12 years now, it's basically a tower of Jenga. And you just have to play Jenga every time you do a skill check, which is horrific. 
<laughs> it starts off really easy in the beginning, and then as you go along, it just gets more and more terrifying. That's right, um, because the so, yeah, so I've, becomes I've, more precarious. So. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've sort of DM'd um, quite a few Dread games uh, with my friends, which I only really started playing pen and paper role-playing games when I moved to Cape Town, okay. uh, which we've been here for a few years. I never got into it. Um, I think that my, my mother thought that they were of the devil, uh, yeah. uh, when I was younger, yeah. Yeah. so yeah, we weren't allowed to, and right. um, and then I, I met a, a whole lot of really amazing, super nerdy friends when I came to Cape Town, and they invited me into one game, and we played Vampire the Masquerade, and I was sort of hooked from then on. Nice, um, nice. And, uh, and then I've also been playing, it's a system called Mothership, which is also a beautiful system for, for one-shots, all the rules on a single page, mm. um, and it's literally the type of game that you can... As a DM, you can make up the game on the spot using the book. You don't have to think about anything. You you sort of you roll the dice to actually kind of like build up your spaceship or build up your supplies. And even your characters are basically randomly created with dice rolls. But I've been playing a lot of sort of pen and paper RPGs. And I think that that's actually been a really um, good thing for the writing of the games that we're actually doing and that it's such a wonderfully organic way of telling stories and it really does sort of force you to think of weird things that can actually happen and then try to put players into those situations and also what happens when the players don't want to do that which i think is a you know games basically adventure games would be very very easy to make if players did exactly what you wanted them to do um but they never do so it's sort of like yeah, the, the nice thing about being a, a DM and sort of, you know, getting that skill set is you really do learn sort of like, you know, if you put people in a room with, with you know, three items, you're going to have to think of nine different possibilities that are going to come come from that. You can't just be like, well, this is the thing they're going to do. You have to sort of try to head off the turn and learn how to funnel people into situations and also when to actually let them explore out um, as you construct yeah. a narrative process like that. So, yeah, that's my roundabout uh what am i def- playing now it definitely oh, shows in beautiful desolation uh, and and of course the other games but this is the one i'm most, fam- most familiar with but uh you know speaking as a pen and paper role-playing game fan as myself i mean I, I play there's a game called the quiet year which i highly recommend uh that's that's a fantastic game which is again similar to one page kind of rule set using a deck of cards mm. and it's wonderful uh and i've also played fate as well it's a nice system provided everyone yeah, buys into cool. it yeah. Uh, and uh, and play Spire. That's another one as well, which is basically chaos. And I'm currently running a game of Dune, which has been quite okay. interesting because it does require cool. the players yeah. knowing who the Atreides are. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had a situation <laughs> where the players went, you know, says so Paul Atreides, who? Paul, Paul Atreides, <laughs> the Quizad Zadarak, the what? The bet. Oh boy. <laughs> Uh, then they're offered the encyclopedia and just say come yeah. back when you're ready. Yeah, I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. This is really important. Yeah. This is like I can't I'm not gonna sit here for half an hour explaining it, but it's not gonna make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me and I understand this stuff. <laughs> but um yeah, it's 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 a wonderful and I find it sort of dabbles with game design. You I've had this uh, discussion with other developers and they've they've admitted that being a DM there is an aspect of game design but it's it's you working within a framework and a narrative that you have to then yeah. plug things into to make sure that you don't disrupt the underlying sh- machine that is the game yeah and that's that can be quite difficult when people go oh, what's the npc's name and you go yeah what npc oh i don't 
Gavin? He's called Gavin. <laughs> yeah. Gav- Wasn't he called Gavin? Well, okay, there's lots of there's more than one person called Gavin. <laughs> so, you know, just get you desperately figure something out, but uh no. Well, wonderful answers both. Thank you very much. Let's move on now to the second half of the show where we delve deep into beautiful desolation. So the first question, regular listeners will know, isn't a question, it's a request. And the request is this. Please tell us, in your own words, what is beautiful desolation? Christopher, would you like to do this one? Uh, so beautiful desolation is a, an open world, point and click adventure game, set in a post-apocalyptic South Africa. Uh, it is an extremely narrative-driven game. Uh, it has um, it's kind of our, our take on if a uh, sort of very very RPG light esque structural framework. So if you had to take the combat completely out of an RPG, and if you were just here for the story, and you wanted a game to essentially explore a uh, a very different take on a post-apocalyptic world. Um, and uh, meet some crazy characters and uh, hopefully go on quite a transformative journey. That would be my sort of, you know, elongated elevator pitch for Beautiful Desolation. I just love the fact that it's a world that ought not be. That's what I love about the game so much, is that you just walk around going, none of this should be functioning like this. (laughs) None of this... This seems to be the underlying tone of it is imagine the most surrealist, bonkers f- picture you could stare at at a museum 
multiply that by a factor of 12, not 10, 12, and you might just be there. Because everything and everyone you encounter, like, well, that's just not right, is it? <laughs> just, and it's just my overwhelming feeling, the phrase that kept on going around my head is, this ought not be. This ought not be. And my personal motivation through experience, and this is me, I may be misinterpreting it, but this is just me, was mm-hmm. I need to fix this. This isn't right. Everything yeah. I'm seeing and hearing none of it's right especially how beautiful south africa is and to see it in this desolated state is just horrifying so that's a wonderful because i'm aware of extraordinary countryside and scenes uh, just mm. that part of the world is yeah. not a lot not enough people do know i know you do and it's quite frustrating because everyone <laughs> babbles on about new zealand which is fine but thanks, Lord of the Rings. But you know, um, it's it's. I'm sorry. I'm, please don't think I'm being patronised. I know you know this, but it's frustrating that you, not many people, not enough people say it. But honestly, the yeah. the, the the countryside of South Africa is phenomenal, um, and uh, it's, there's no word to describe it, quite frankly. And to see it in this state just sends me into a bit of a rage, going, "This ought not be." Okay. <laughs> So you've done a good job there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so it is, everyone, listeners, this is a, I believe, and I'm not being elitist when I say this or gatekeeping, but I believe Beautiful Desolation is a very pure adventure game. When I say pure, that sounds a bit odd, but it's a very, it is an adventure game of a glowing an capital game. A, yeah. maybe not glowing, but one of those sort of, gothic writing with lots of dragons spitting out from it, a adventure game. And that's where you meet, it, 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 from the screenshots you may think, oh, it looks a bit like Fallout. No, it's not, because uh, the only similarities is the presentation. Everything else, the way you play, where you interact with the world, the people you interact with, you know, they're not going to try and shoot your face off immediately. Um, they will say constantly weird things to you, because they are their work, you know, and you will be talking to a robot dog a lot who doesn't seem to, well, she has a, issues, um, but <laughs> a lot. Um, but, and it all comes out, spilling out. But uh, yeah, so there's that's beautiful desolation for you. It is an adventure game set in a, a, a broken South Africa. Um, I'm going to talk to, so my first design question is this. From the outset, it appears that Beautiful Desolation encourages lateral thinking on the part of the player. And that works to a point. And I just wondered, during the design process, as you were going through this, at what point did you feel it was safe to deviate from that model? In the, in the design of the whole game? At what point did you think, I think the player is now comfortable enough in the world to know that <clears throat> things aren't quite what they seem or things aren't as logical as what they'd like it to be? At what point are you going to deviate from that? And, um, um, and how far did you go, do you think, without giving anything away? Yeah, sure. I think um, sort of on a, on a pure design um, uh, uh, sort of... Uh, Axis, we we tried to ground 
everything in some level of, of reality. You know, um, what you said earlier about uh, adventure games in the late 90s sort of going off on, or early 2000s going off on a tangent. Yes. We tried to avoid that in terms of, uh, you know, using, we sort of, it was it was a difficult task, and I, and I don't think we've been criticised too much by players. I mean, um, we in in our previous games we did have one or two really difficult puzzles that uh, required beyond lateral thinking that we we sort of learned from, you know, uh, on this game here. So we tried to ground it in in the reality that the player was in as much as possible, which is not an easy task considering the circumstances, Chris. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think there's a there's a, a certain um, design philosophy that you have to have, which is where you sort of create a contract with with the player, um, and what you sort of have to do is you, you have to give give them enough structure in the first part of the game, let them sort of like open up a bit of experimentation on. So you know, if I cut out a person's eye, I can use it. This is not a puzzle in the game, so it's not a thing. You know, but uh, do I have the ability to sort of cut out a person's eye and use it on an eye scanner? Um, and if that ever there is your structure that you've actually given the player, then that'll actually let them try more extreme things later on because they know sort of how far they can actually go. And I think if you, you, the idea is to sort of like, if, you know, the very first part of the game, essentially we start out the game with a conversation engine. So very, or the, the conversation part of the game, the very first thing you do is you're talking to somebody in the game. Uh, and in the story, uh, you're talking to Mark, uh, Leslie is talking to his wife as they're sort of driving and discussing what they're going to do about Mark's brother. So literally from the get-go of the game, we are sort of like um, showing that it's relationships and talking and this mechanic is very important. And then we sort of go on and we, we try to introduce certain things. You know, we, we're not a big fan of tutorials in, in games. I think that um, specifically in our games, we've always tried to sort of uh, tutorialize through gameplay. So, you know, you need to pick this up and this over here lets you interact with the computer system. So we try to get as many of the actual gameplay interactions done in the first screen of the game, at least the first two screens of the game. So you need to open up your journal and there's a clue in the journal and you need to do this and, and do that. Um, and then when we get into the, the game and actually throw the player into the world, uh, our hope by the time you get to the buffalo and by the time you've actually fixed your ship and you're sort of navigating around is that we've laid enough of a, of a groundwork and we've showed enough of the thinking of the game and how we actually do things. So I think if, you know, if, if it started off with sort of like cat moustache puzzles in the very first uh, or second screen of the game, the expectation for the player would then be that that's how they need to think for the yep. rest of the game as they go yep. forward. But because our puzzles are very much sort of like you attach a battery to a thing that needs power. You find a battery, you combine it with the thing that needs power. So it's like, okay, that's sort of the way that this game actually works. It wasn't you have to rub the thing that needs power on your pants to get enough static charge to build it up to do something. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think a big thing is just sort of trying to like set up that contract with the player as early as possible. Right. Let them understand how obtuse the puzzles will get in the first two or three scenes of the game, um, how the conversation system actually works, and then kind of just hope that we've done our job enough to actually let the player go forward and experience the world. And then occasionally there's a couple of little curveballs and, and you know little mini games and uh, little alternative things that we can throw in at a, at a later date just to sort of keep things interesting. Um, but I think we, yeah, a big thing is just trying to sort of like 
keep that um, that interaction structure in the first two or three parts of the game you interact with, and then just have faith that the player will be able to continue with that contract throughout the rest of the game. It's interesting where you, when you get the buffalo, this transport, this military transport thing it happens very early, everyone, and uh, I call that finding the island or exploring the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, from from Monkey Island, basically, it's basically yes, yeah. when the game opens up. Initially, you're doing little scenes and little, and then all of a sudden, oh, there's a big island to explore. Yep, totally. Yeah, you don't know this. Sure. You're on an island, you can explore it now. Off you go. But the game doesn't let you do that until you do certain things. And, yes, with, yeah. and yeah. I call it many adventure games do this is not unusual, but everyone has their own way of approaching it and letting them play. And otherwise things happen uh, but yeah i call it finding the island like, oh there it is so well done with that i think you're yeah i think you're yeah go on i think it's important to sort of i mean if we could have just immediately op- we could have done the first part of the game in a cutscene. um would it, we could have done it wouldn't have been a problem and we i think um technically it wouldn't have been an issue but i think that the player that slow build would have um would have uh the game would have been less for it. You know, we, we did toy in the beginning, like how we wanted to get into the world of Beautiful Desolation as quickly as possible. So it happens a couple of screens into the game. We didn't want to linger in the present, but we did want to show what the, we did want to show what a nice world was like before we showed a desolate world. It's important. I think that's an important storytelling point for you. You want to show the good before the bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll sort of like, create that uh, position. Yeah. Yeah. Our touchstone has always sort of been that, I mean, Oz is, is only fantastic when you've seen Kansas. You know, if in The Wizard of Oz, if you started off in the land of Oz, then it's yeah. like, okay, well, this is just the way it is. Yeah. But you go from boring Kansas, and then you yeah. get whisked away <laughs> to the land of Oz. Oh, and suddenly yeah. Oz is beautiful and fantastic yeah. and amazing. Yeah. yeah, so we always try to say, you know, like, where is our Kansas? And our Kansas was sort of uh, a hangar, and then there's little things then slowly building up, and suddenly you get into Oz. And it's this incredible experience because you're juxtaposing it against sort of the boring and the mundane world that we actually have. Speaking of environments, this is almost as if you know the uh, the questions, or I might, have, <laughs> or I might have steered you down that path. Who knows? <laughs> Um, I'm a DM after all, just saying. Uh, (laughs) um, But yeah, so the second question is this. The environments within Beautiful Desolation are quite large and exploration is really rewarded. However, how do you find yourself encouraging this activity on the part of the player? Um, Well, I think I can definitely take that and... um... Something that I, I completely and utterly stole from Pillars of Eternity, because uh, essentially what, what we did when we sort of first wanted to do uh, an, an adventure game um, with these sort of like isometric graphics, uh, before our games had basically been sort of like the camera was focused on a single room. And um, suddenly with uh, something like um, Pillars of Eternity, they had these massive areas. So I looked at them and I was sort of trying to figure out how do they get the players around? How do they direct them? And something that they do is they they, they always have like paths that are actually on, on the ground and they're very, very subtle and you might not actually see them, but they, they're very, very smart in their design and actually setting up road markers almost for the player to actually move around. Um, and that's definitely something that uh, I, I looked at and saw like how do they actually lay these things out? And I, I tried to take as many of those um, 
uh, design lessons that they'd obviously learned through through their immense experience and bring it into into beautiful desolation. And um, also trying to sort of like always make certain that each new place that the player went to had a different palette and had a, a, a different feel to it. Um, and make sure, certain that each environment and each that you had some at least one special touchstone, one special thing. Anything it could be like a there's a fancy rock, you know, or it's sort of a, it's a view that overlooks a waterfall, or just these little things. Um, and trying to make certain that each scene had something that would make you go, like make, make you really remember that scene and, and and remember those 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 things. So yeah, sort of signposting by using. Uh, markings in the ground was very important, and then also making certain that each scene had something unique and and special to it. Yeah, I mean, for me, I've been playing games for thousands of years, so one of the earliest experiences I had with this kind of exploration and reward for the mere act of exploration was mm-hmm. a, a text adventure called The Hobbit, um, which, yeah. on reflection, wasn't a great game, but the actual graphics and presentation of it was astonishing, you know, they'd show all the key scenes from the book The Hobbit, and you'd go through and you'd, you'd do event, you'd type commands and say, you know, Thorin carry me and, and what have you and get into the barrel and not get killed by the elves and it's 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 but it had all these pictures, all these amazing images, and just you were awarded through exploration by these amazing pieces of art, mm. which you know were quite basic back then, but at the time it was quite breathtaking. And similarly with beautiful desolation, I found myself the reward of of, of exploration is seeing these amazing scenes to the point where it's actually sketched out in a. In, in, a, in a virtual handbook that you have, whereas, and it actually shows you some concept art. It's beautiful. So I, I just felt that was, you know, the reward of exploration, that's the key to adventure games for me, is that actually yeah. exploring the world and finding about world more than actually solving the puzzles themselves. The, I find the puzzles are a means to an end, the end being exploring yeah, and experiencing the world. Do you agree? Absolutely. You know, um, we some, some reviews that we've got of the game have said, oh, the game feels really um, empty. But I think we sort of, uh, we didn't want to add 500 NPCs into the game that just, um, you know, chatted to you around every corner. And we sort of, we didn't want to um, have thousands of mini games, which essentially, that's all that the AAA games do to pad out the environments. We sort of saw, like you said, the environments, uh, the exploration of the environments as a as a, as a reward in itself. I mean, we do have little trinkets that the character can find, and we have little sketches that Mark can take. Into, I think that's what you mentioned a bit earlier. He takes little sketches in different yeah. areas, um, yeah. uh, hand-drawn sketches, and that which add to your scrapbook. Um, you know, just kind of encouraging. We kind of work to to our limitations. I mean. As an industry, studio, we're only two people. So mm. we sort of, we're limited in the resources, but we try to, we know we can do environments really well and we try to put as much effort in that. And I think there, there is something tangibly magical about 2D, uh, 2D games. Um, it's something that um, I don't think 3D games have where, uh, you know, in, in 3D, um, and I'm sort of um, being... Um, Myopic over here, but but in 3D games, you know, you can kind of auto-generate the terrain, and you can add trees automatically. Whether the artists do that or not, they obviously a lot of game studios don't necessarily just do that. But the players perceive that that these um, environments are not hand-generated, whereas with 2D, especially 2D illustrative games, 
every pixel has been uh, put there on purpose by an artist. So I think that um, this, you know, 2D has some kind of magic to it. So if we can create these vast environments that are um, illustrated and every rock has been placed by someone and rendered and lit and made perfect and we want the play people to see it, then I think we've done our job well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just really awesome. So, which leads me on to our next point now. See, I've done it again. Um, there is a balance. <laughs> I must have done this before. There is a balance between overwhelming the player with information and then drip-feeding them to the point of frustration. How have you found optimizing this aspect when developing Beautiful Desolation? Uh, Nick, do you want to take that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, from a technical aspect, uh, we uh, we did want to we didn't want to make a game that um, sort of told the, the player everything at all times. So we kind of went with um, the uh, because of our target market um, was sort of uh, uh, veteran adventure gamers. We sort of uh, went with a um, a diary system that sort of um, and journal system that added information as you went along. So we didn't make everything available to the player. Uh, immediately, and I think that that's uh, uh, one of the um, one of the touchstones of the game. But it is it is very difficult because obviously you 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 want to appeal to newer gamers as well. And newer gamers, you know, from the last uh, decade, um, generally uh, have in adventure games, specifically in that genre, have their ha hand held all the way to the end. You know, if they don't if they don't do something, the player will prompt them. Hey, maybe I should go over here. Where? Um, Maybe from a from a from a um, a point a resource point, we didn't have the resources to be able to add that much content to the game. But also, we just don't enjoy games like that. So we sort of wanted, because the exploration was a big point, we wanted the players to explore, and we wanted them to um, find out the the information themselves. Chris, yeah. do you want to elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's so. I mean, in, in terms of of the actual structure of the game, um, we we knew. We knew how the game would, would actually work in terms of, you know, you, you go, you fly around, you go to different places. But the idea of when certain places would be would be opened up was something that we were always discussing. And, I mean, the way that the game essentially works is, um, for people that haven't played it, um, is uh, you sort of, you, you've got um, three levels in the game. And the first level is essentially with you as your character and you're actually running around. Then you've got a level above that, which is where you're flying around in the buffalo on a sort of like an overworld map. And then you've got a level above that, which is a warden system, which you can essentially travel to other overworld maps and then go into those spaces. Um, and in the way that we actually designed the quests and everything in the game, we technically could have opened up every single map from the get-go, and the game would still structurally work, and the story would still structurally work, just how we actually laid out our quests and the fact that you can... You can essentially go to any place at any time during the game, and it wouldn't actually break the game. Um, and one of the reasons why we actually did that was so that we could sort of play through the game and get a feel as to when we need to open up the game to more areas, where we need to sort of like bottleneck players. And we always tended to err on the side of opening up the world more than than sort of like bottlenecking the player too much. Um, uh, and that is something that's maybe a bit of the antithesis to other adventure games, which tend to be rather linear. You know, they'll open up and you'll get maybe it's the the, the Ron Gilbert sort of like the rule of three, where you can do sort of three things, and then that then bottlenecks down and opens up again to three things. 
So our game is sort of like a, a monster spider diagram of three things and three things and three things. And then the other line, it's three things and three things and three things. Um, and it, it, I think it does, it, it can get to the point where it is a little bit overwhelming. And there's even been some um, sort of criticisms of the game in that if you play the game and you leave it for a day or two, and then you come back to it, you might have, you sort of like forget where you are in the world and you forget what you have to actually do. And we, we tried to have, so we had conversation review systems, we had journal entry system. Um, we ended up putting in sort of uh, very subtle quest markers in the game to to address those those issues. Um, but again, it comes to that, that thing that I was talking about with the contract with the player, where we sort of like, as we opened up the game more and more, we tried to introduce to the player this idea that they can sort of, they don't have to do everything in the order that they've actually been given it, that they can sort of play around with the order of doing different things. Go on one quest. If you're not quite enjoying that one, there's another line that you can actually go with some other people that might need your help. And hopefully that'll weave back into the, the, the first parts of the game. Yeah, I think, I think you know, I mentioned earlier Star Control 2, which uh, had a very similar narrative construction. Uh, at one point, you fix your starship and you can leave um, Earth's so, you know, leave Sol, leave our solar system. And then you see this massive star map with all these places you can go. And kind of th that feeling of an enormous world, you know, you got it from Elite as well. We, that's, we, we did want to like, I know people have um, sometimes say that um, our games feel a little bit overwhelming, but we did actually, do, <laughs> there was actually intent behind it. We did want to create this thing where, there's this huge world and people are excited. There's lots of places to go and visit. You know, it was an intentional design uh, philosophy that we had. Um, and uh, like Chris said, even though um, we did have these thousands of, uh, or maybe not thousands, but like a hundred different locations that you can go to, and we could have opened it up, we did slowly bottleneck it. But we still wanted to create that kind of feeling of, wow, this is a really big exciting world and I can't wait to land at all these places and go and chat to the people up there and go and sort of find out what the story is and uh, yeah I think that that was we wanted the player to be able to construct their own story um, so that if, if somebody goes and tells their story of how they played the game uh, it'll be different from the way that another person actually actually plays it and even their sort of like interpretation of different story events might come off differently depending on the order that they've actually played certain things in. Um, and that was something that we really tried to uh, tried to do, which, you know, for the considering it was it was the first time we'd ever actually done anything um, that was non-linear, because our previous games have been quite, quite linear. Um, I think that we were, uh, to pat myself on the back, but I think that we were quite successful in, in that as a, a, as a structure to actually build off of. Yeah, yeah. Well, last question, and there's something we haven't actually dabbled with because we've been dancing around the topic, but I think we need to. I can't not talk about this aspect of Beautiful Desolation. Um, and uh, it's the sound design. Um, there's a lot of directional sound occurring, alerting to player to some things, and then some things like, oh, what's that? And like, there's just a wild creature in the background probably torturing something. But um, could you tell us um, the, the, the your the importance or where you went or your strategy behind the sound design of Beautiful Desolation in terms of uh, the, um, not so much the score, but the spot effects and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, we um, we wanted to keep it as authentic as as, um, as possible. So 
we purchased a library of bird sounds um, from um, a local uh, a local guy who literally went and recorded all the local birds in the area um, that the game was actually set in. And uh, we then um, created uh, a multi-layered dynamic system uh, that um, plays the uh, various effects and blends them really nicely together. It's a super complicated uh, um, uh, system that... Uh, Tries to, um, we didn't really have any emotive sort of uh, um, a system that sort of pushed the tempo up or down, but we sort of had, we wanted to create a, a really blended kind of um, uh, sound of the, of the wilderness. We didn't want to just create one wave file that was 10 minutes long and loop that. So once again, going on the fact that we wanted everyone's experience to be a little bit different. So we'll have birds squirks walking in the background and then, if they may trigger off some animals who will roar and that sort of thing. But um, really soft and really directional. So we didn't create a system where all the sound was in one layer in front of the player, which a lot of adventure games tend to do. We sort of went with a really kind of um, dynamic uh, uh, a mix system. Chris, do you want to elaborate on that a bit more? Well, I mean, uh, uh, I think, um, I mean, I even think that Nick's sort of underselling the amazing sound system that, that he actually that he actually wrote Um uh, and instruction in, in the game because if you think about it, we actually had sort of 3D directional sound in a 2D isometric game. Yeah, amazing. Um, which is amazing. which is a it's yeah. Like, you know, when, when when you go to 3D, it's like well, you can put like an emitter in front of you and behind you, and your 5.1 yeah. will actually sort of pick it up. But you're dealing with a 2D game with a fixed camera where you don't even know the direction that the player is actually facing. Yeah. And the fact that the sound can, actually feels three-dimensional and feels like it's encompassing. Um, the player is is quite amazing, and even small things, you know, just sort of having the um, the footsteps uh, be driven by the actual rays shooting down from the character's feet into the ground that actually trigger off the footstep sounds that change according to the different surfaces that you actually run on. Um, we, uh, the, we the sound system is, is beautiful. It's... Yeah, we use a lot of three D techniques in a two D game. Another thing we did was we had a whole insect system that basically. Um, would uh, pick insects that would fly past their ears and would sort of travel across the uh, travel across the uh, screen. We, there's a there's a critter system as well um, with uh, various critters that run around and squeak and bats that move around and sort of uh, and uh, they change based on the environment that you're at. So some environments might have seagulls and um, and mice and some might have just bats and rats and um, they interact with the sound differently as well. So I think the and you've had a lot of questions about the sound and like how did you create sound? I think that the the main trick is just layers. We just have a lot yeah. of layers cleverly layered and merged and blended together. Yeah. Um, I think um, I think that um, a lot of indie games, um, a lot of the ones that I play, kind of take a track and they'll just take one track and make it seamless and loop it over. But um, my suggestion to them is take lots of offset tracks and blend them and merge them and, and build up a dynamic system, even if you're doing a 2D game. Um, players have responded really well to it. Uh, mm. So I think it, it was successful. Very, very I, I think that, I think that uh, something as well that um, uh, uh, we, well, I mean, Nick, Nick very much did the 90% of the sound in, in, in the game. Um, and something that uh, was important to us was while we had, uh, I sort of did the visual design of, of all the areas and tried to make certain that all the areas looked very, very unique. Um, but then something that Nick did was he he made certain that each area sounds very different and, and sounds unique. And there's still sort of our sounds that carry over in the world. 
Um, but each area had a very, very strong uh, sort of audio texture to it that was very unique to that specific area from the different types of wind that were blowing in certain spaces to the, the, the background noise of people and you know how far away the animals would be in certain areas. Um, and a lot of that stuff just comes from uh, Nick just literally playing the game and adding something and layering it on and then going to a new area and coming up with a sort of a sound library for that area and then building up on that. Yeah. 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 We also use like a lot of binaural sound um, uh, texture layers and there's also like there's basically a sound layer that plays from the moment the player goes to the main menu there's actually an underlying hum that plays throughout the whole game and we found that um, uh, by doing that when, when the scenes transitioned um, because we were playing a sound over the transition they transi- uh, the, the, there wasn't an abrupt break in the sound so it's something that um, we learned from our previous games um, that works really well. You know, if you if you um, take the sound down, if you duck the sound down to zero and then load a new scene, people pick that up. It's like a mental break in 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 um, in the back of their back of their head. So we sort of took this sound that overlaps all the scenes, and it actually transitions the scenes really well. So. You sort of are convinced that the game is loading a lot faster than it actually is. It, it'll, <laughs> it'll buy you a second or two of loading time sort of mentally if you continue to sound over loading screens. Nice. That's a good tip. <laughs> Beats uh, crawling through a little yeah. uh, like crack in a wall, which is what yes, yeah. over Elevators. and over again. <laughs> um, but um, Beautiful Desolation is developed by the Brotherhood. At this point, I'd actually ask you where you get the name for the company from, but it's a bit pointless, really. It's got to speak for itself. But uh, we've had some interesting answers to that question, my friends. I can assure you of that. Uh, and is it, it is published by Untold Tales, I understand. Um, is that right? Yeah, so we published the, uh, the PC version, uh, PC, right. OS X, and Linux, and they are handling our console and right. our Switch uh, version uh, gra- uh, graciously. They're a lov- lovely company, mm. and uh, yeah, they're handling that, that component of it. Excellent. They, they actually I... did the, the full conversion of it and everything, so wow, full, full console. So, um, yeah. so I've only played on Windows PC but on Mac uh, uh, and Linux. Um, appreciate the Mac one because I've got a laptop that's a Mac because I can just take oh, a okay. bullet and still go, right? It's the weird, weird thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it costs a fortune, but dear heaven, uh, they're built like a tank. Yeah. <laughs> the game was developed on a MacBook Pro 20, uh, 2015 that I still use to this day. Exactly. I think it's going to last me another five years. So. Yeah. 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 It, so cost, it costs as much as the house, but yeah. it's great. <laughs> but, but the thing is, when they die... Boy, do they. <laughs> they don't mess yes. around. Like, no, I'm done. Yes. No, I'm done. Well, my second hard drive, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, what consoles is second that? Second battery. Yeah. And what console? I know Nintendo Switch, but is it PlayStation mm-hmm. things? Is it, do you know? PS4 and PS5 with backwards compatibility, yeah. Excellent, excellent. So I hesitate to Switch, ask about yeah. the PS5 because I own one. I'm one of the three people in the world that do. Uh, and uh, but So just to make sure that there's actually work on that. But gentlemen... It's been wonderful having you on the show. Um, Thank you, Chris. You've been really open and honest about the design and development of Beautiful Desolation and uh, wish you the very best of luck with it and your future endeavours, whatever they may be. Um, Thank you. And you're more than welcome to come back and chat about whatever the thing is. We'll definitely be back. Yes. And um, you won't do the first half of the show. Um, Well, yeah... (laughs) 
<laughs> Love it. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll delve into the second half. But Lair, uh, um, thanks very much for being on. Thank you very much for having it's us. Our pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, canonrince.com. <laughs> <laughs>